Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. I'm thinking smelling or mm-hmm. um, like drinking, like a mint tea. Oh, yes, or a poultice. A which? A poultice? A poultice? Poultice? Post, post, yeah, I know what you mean, but you know I'm trying to say. I know what you're trying to say. Pulse, post, yeah, mm hmm, okay, yeah, 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 cut that bit out. Hello, and welcome to Chicks Three, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them or sometimes written in them and then just decided to be left out again. My name's Annie. Rewritten. Rewritten. That's Phoebe. (laughs) Hello. Uh, We've had a couple of weeks off. Phoebe's been sunning herself in Thailand. How was that? Oh, it was lovely. I'm made up of 95% mojito now. Uh, So I have to dry out. Beautiful. (laughs) But it was lovely. It was very nice. I was following your escapades on the socials (laughs) and um, I've got to say, funny i'm here for the lols had some lols um yeah no it was it was great i like that you just you know were kind of like just every post was like i give no fucks because here i am and you're over there and i'm (laughs) exactly (laughs) stuff you all i don't care no sugar coating it (laughs) which i love highlight Oh, every day is a highlight in Thailand. No. It's just, yeah, it's just so nice too. The people are beautiful, the weather's beautiful, the food's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. just a chilled out couple of weeks, which was really nice. Let's get into it. Have you got a historic fact for us today? <gasps> Do I? Let's start back strong. I'm going to tell you a little bit about teeth. Mm, delightful. Yeah. So it wasn't until about 1860 that the UK first introduced the first qualification for dentistry. So prior to that, anyone could call themselves a dentist and give advice on your teeth. So, you know, I think jewelers, chemists, wig makers, even blacksmiths. So during the 18th and 19th century, sugar consumption was on the rise and with it came the decline in dental health. So there was also a rise at this time in attempts at teeth whitening with acidic solutions, which ultimately wore away enamel. So these factors saw teeth needing to be removed and the demand for false teeth began to grow. However, replacing teeth was and really still is a very costly venture. And without the technology we have today with such things as acrylic teeth, there was a need to find some replacements. There was the use of such products as ivory for the plate and sometimes for the actual teeth as well. That was quite costly, but what could be cheaper than something manufactured? Well, human teeth, of course. So the perfect Mm. opportunity arose with the tens of thousands of mouths no longer in need of their teeth. This was the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, which saw dead bodies of British, French and Prussian soldiers above ground and with plenty of teeth for the taking. Oh, no. Mm. So, yes. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So 
These teeth would be pulled by surviving soldiers and looters by pliers from the recently killed soldiers' mouths and then sold to those wanting new teeth or those profiting from their hand at making plates and dentures for the rich and toothless. <laughs> by the middle of the 19th century, the use of human teeth in dentures had declined, partly because of the use of new technologies, but also due to the 1832 Anatomy Act, which licensed the movements of human corpses. So you can actually, um, you know, squirmy warning, you can actually Google this and there are um, there's a museum, like the Dental Museum in London, I think, and they've got all these teeth on what, like hanging on wires. So you could buy them in the markets and all sorts oh, of things. No. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Like, yeah. It sounds weird, but we do organ donations. Well, that's true. So skin grafts. Yeah. Mm. Hair transplants. Yes. Although hair transplants, isn't that from your own head? Or is it not? Well, no, you can get, I think you can get hair from other okay. people as well. Yeah. So just, I mean, it sounds odd, but it's not that sort of far off from what we're already doing. I wonder if, you know how sometimes, you know, when you find like if there's been a murder and they identify someone just from mm. their dental remains. Oh, <gasps> Imagine what if, um, oh. I know. There you go. <laughs> yeah, great. A little, little tattle about teeth. <laughs> A little tooth tattle. <laughs> I've gone a little bit rogue this week and instead of telling you just about one woman in history, I'm going to tell you about a thing in history that affected many women. When I say the word hysteria, what comes to mind? <sighs> well, women, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm. Correct. Hysterical. Correct. Hysterical. Women. It is it is one of those words that gets bandied about by only women will be hysterical. You would never hear a man being um mentioned as hysterical, would you? No, you would not. Mm. You would not. Phoebe, you are indeed correct. Today I'm gonna tell you all about the history of hysteria and just how women and our uteruses or uteri. Mm-hmm. Uteruses? Uteri? I don't know. I don't Came know. Came to the centre of this ancient but horribly misunderstood ailment. To begin, let's look at the etymology of the word itself. Now, you and I love a bit of etymology. We love uh, that podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple, mm -hmm. all about words. And if you don't know it, you should check it out because it's um yeah it's kind of history and etymology and words and they'll pick a theme each week and talk about where different words come from so the word hysteria originates from the greek word hystera meaning uterus so that kind of you know starts to give you a little bit paints a little bit of a picture of where we're going <laughs> So our story starts around 1900 BCE. So BCE, incidentally, stands for before the common or current era. So, I mean, I know, I remember learning B, BC before Christ, but BCE, before common or current era. A bloody um, long time ago. 
Look, a really long time ago, <laughs> when the oldest recorded behavioural abnormalities in adult women were written in ancient text, it was believed that these behavioural abnormalities were due to a wandering uterus. Oh, just grow some legs and walk away. <laughs> walk around, sit down for a walk. Uh, that's the very first idea of hysteria was born. So the ancient Greeks, however, while also accepting the ancient Egyptians' explanation for hysteria, included in their definition of hysteria the inability to bear children or the unwillingness to marry. In Greek mythology, it is also said that women who refused to honour the phallus and instead fled to the mountains were dubbed mad. Nope, I'm going to say no to the D and I'm going to leave the mountains. <laughs> These women were cured with the flowering plant hellebore and then urged to have sex with young and strong men. It was believed that if a woman wasn't having sex and naturally releasing her <clears throat> poisoned humours <laughs> due to lack of orgasms, it would lead to uterine melancholy. Now, what is a poisoned humour, you are? I do. I really am asking that. <laughs> so um, there's this thing called humoral theory, um, as it was known. It's based around the body having four humours or bodily fluids thought to impact our temperaments, personalities and health. So the four humours were actually blood, phlegm, black bile and yellow bile. What? Ooh. I really hope you're not eating dinner or lunch or your breakfast. Uh, okay, so while this was popular in ancient Greece at the time, humoral theory remained widespread for centuries, even up until as late as the 1800s. So the idea of hysteria started to spread and well-known men of the ancient world, for example, Plato and Aristotle, believed that hysteria, which Plato also called female madness, was directly related to women's lack of sexual activity and described those who suffered from it as having a sad, bad or melancholic uterus. You don't want to be sad, bad, or melancholy, do you? Pure yeah. uterus? In the uterus, no. <laughs> so both Plato and Aristotle supported the roaming uteri theory and went further to call it hysterical suffocation. They believed the uterus would make its way around the body, suffocating vital organs. <laughs> this affliction could only be cured when the offending uterus was usually coaxed back into place by placing good smells near the vagina and bad smells near the mouth and sneezing. Oh, There's a lot to unpack there. Isn't it? Mm. I love also that these men blamed our condition on our bodies turning against us as well. Mm. Like, of course, it's our, you know, malfunctioning melancholy <laughs> uteruses that, you know, give us these afflictions. I wonder what sort of smells they, um, yeah, they'll, mm. yeah. It I've just, got questions. Look, in, in what I read, it just said good smells and bad smells. So, I, look, I don't know what was considered a good smell and a bad smell. Mm. I'm thinking like, you know, something flowery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Flower for your flower. 
Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. we liked, you know, maybe that hellebore that they mm-hmm. used for the, you know, the other cure perhaps. Quite, quite a pretty flower. Even the father of medicine himself, Hippocrates, believed in the idea of a restless and migratory uterus and he also identifies the cause due to poisonous and stagnant fluids which, due to an inadequate sex life, have never been expelled. So basically if you're a woman and you're not having sex with men and you're denying the phallic and you're running away to the mountains and you're just trying to be a woman living her life, you'll be told that you have you you have this wandering uterus situation and you've got these stagnant fluids that you need to release. Thus again making women depend on men. Mm-hmm. Hippocrates stated that a woman's body is physiologically cold and wet. <laughs> as opposed to the dry and warm male body. I beg to differ. Um, (laughs) For these reasons, the uterus is prone to get sick, especially if it is deprived of the benefits arising from sex and procreation. It is believed that procreation would widen a woman's canals, thus promoting the cleansing of the body. So, again, it's just you know, something bad is inside us and we need to get rid of it. And of course, we need a man to help us do that. Mm. Hippocrates even went further to state that especially in virgins, widows, single or sterile women, this bad uterus, since it is not satisfied, not only produces toxic fumes, but also takes to wandering around the body, causing various kinds of disorders such as anxiety, a sense of suffocation, tremors, sometimes even convulsions and paralysis. Oh, no, my uterus has just gone up to my throat. I can't breathe. Right? (laughs) Silly uterus. Silly uterus. (laughs) Hey, do you have a wandering uterus? (laughs) Well, you need a man. For this reason, he suggests that even widows and unmarried women should get married and live a satisfactory sexual life within the bounds of marriage, of course. The ancient Romans also attributed hysteria to an abnormality in the uterus, however, discarded the traditional explanation that it was wandering. Instead, the ancient Romans credited hysteria to a disease of the uterus or a disruption in reproduction, for example, a miscarriage or menopause even. All of these theories would go on to form the basis of the Western understanding of hysteria. After around the 5th century, due to the increase of Christianity, the medical and public understanding of hysteria begins to change when St. Augustine suggests that human suffering resulted from sin. This meant that hysteria must only mean one thing. Those suffering from it were also suffering from satanic possession. Of course. So it's not bad enough that like our our uteruses are turning against us. Now we're possessed by the freaking devil. <laughs> now Satan's after us too. Because we've got a little bit of anxiety and depression. <sighs> For fuck's sake. With this shift in thinking also came a shift in how women were treated. No surprise. Instead of being sent to the hospital, they were taken to church and treated with prayers, amulets, and exorcisms. Mm-hmm. It was around this time that two prominent female doctors also have their own thoughts around hysteria. Sadly, it's not great, but um, a woman by the name of Trota de Ruggiero 
who is considered the first female doctor in Christian Europe, as well as the first gynecologist, recognised that women were often ashamed to go to the doctor with gynecological issues. So this led her to study only women's diseases, trying to avoid any common misconceptions and prejudices that women were facing during this time. So regardless of this and her being quite, you know, empathetic to women's problems, she also believed in hysteria and a lot of those reasons that we've talked about and often prescribed remedies such as mint. Uh, also, Hildegard of Bingen, another female doctor of the era, also combined science and faith, agreeing with the theories of Hippocrates, as well as suggesting that hysteria may be connected to the idea of original sin. However, she did believe that men and women were both responsible for original sin, so both could therefore suffer from hysteria. This was pretty radical, as up until then, it had, hysteria had only been considered a female issue. So we're kind of getting somewhere there with um, Hildegard of Bingen. <laughs> Common point of view at the time was that women were inferior beings, which was connected to Aristotle's ideas of male superiority. Many of the problems doctors were attempting to fix in female patients were not problems when they presented in male patients. Shocker. Yeah, so you've got a ma man presenting going, oh, I just feel a little bit sad and get a bit anxious and my heart starts beating really fast and, you know, I'm just having these symptoms and the doctor's like, oh, you poor love, go have a lie down, go have a <laughs> nip of whiskey and ha have a lie down. And if you're a woman, she's got a wandering uterus <laughs> and she's not having enough sex. Exorcism. That's all they're prescribing. <laughs> and get that woman an exorcism at once and some mint. <laughs> Gendered stereotypes like this and the ideas that women should be submissive, even tempered and sexually inhibited, cause permanent damage throughout history and continue to do so today. It doesn't seem so coincidental then that most modern treatments for hysteria involved regular marital sex, marriage or pregnancy and childbirth, which were all proper activities for mm. a proper woman. Proper lady. In early Christianity, exorcism was considered a cure, but as hysteria becomes confused with sorcery, it actually becomes a brutal punishment. So basically, if a doctor couldn't identify the cause of a disease in a woman, it was understood that it was contracted by the devil. Sorcery, in fact, becomes the scapegoat for every female illness. It is also said that the word feminine, derived from the word femina, being formed from fee and minus, literally means someone who has less faith. There you go. Right? This thinking led to one of the worst times in history for females and female only illnesses where up until the 18th century, thousands of innocent women were put to death on the basis of evidence or confessions obtained through exorcisms, which were basically forms of torture. The most famous outbreak of what was known as hysteria occurred in the village of Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Hello. Salem witch trials. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was all because of hysteria. Like it's come from, it's all kind of come from that, you know, and then mm. these women who were forced to have these exorcisms um, were basically told or if their body didn't behave in a certain way and they eventually 
confessed to being a witch or to having hysteria that then they were they were you know basically um murdered Mm. But as the story goes, a slave from Barbados talks about a prediction of their fate and she, along with a handful of other young women who are unmarried, form a circle of initiation. This action is seen as a violation against the Puritans of the time. It is said that the girls became possessed with symptoms of staring, raucous noises and muffled, uncontrolled jumps and sudden movements. The local doctor at the time, William Griggs, referred the problem to the priest and the slave and two other women were summoned and here the young slave admits to witchcraft and packs with the devil. Gradually the women began to accuse each other and eventually 19 were hanged as witches and over 100 were kept in detention. Only when the wife of the governor was accused of being part of the circle herself did further arrests and trials for witchcraft seats. Throughout the 18th century, many activists and scholars worked to change the perception of hysteria away from the devil and back to a medical condition, with theories such as hysteria being a disease of the brain or an emotional condition. This was different to the original original idea that it was a physical condition, and it's here that the condition starts to become disassociated with the uterus. Finally. Finally. The focus for the symptoms of hysteria is starting to be put on the central nervous system and the neurological model of hysteria was created. This also brought with it less gender bias, but still it was documented that women would be more likely to have it. In 1880, the French father of neurology, a guy by the name of Jean Martin Chacot, was one of the first doctors to push for a systemic study of mental illnesses and a modern scientific sense to the female-only disease of hysteria or what he referred to as the great neurosis. Chacot theorised that hysteria was a hereditary physiological disorder. He believed hysteria impaired areas of the brain which provoked the physical symptoms displayed in the each patient. While Chacot believed hysteria was hereditary, he also thought that environmental factors such as stress could trigger hysteria in an individual. Chacot published more than 120 case studies of patients who he diagnosed with hysteria, including Marie Blanche Whitman, who's referred to as the queen of hysterics and remains the most famous patient of hysteria. To treat his patients, Chacot used hypnosis, which he determined was successful only when used on hysterics. Using patients as props, Chacot executed dramatic public demonstrations of hysterical patients and his cures for hysteria, which many suggest only added to the hysterical phenomenon. Furthermore, Chacot noted similarities between demon possession and hysteria, and thus he concluded demonomania was a form of hysteria. So we've just gone back a few mm. years. Now, unbeknownst to him, one of his students at the time was to become the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. Ah, Freud. So Freud was uh, in his classes and he went on to develop Charcot's theories further and wrote several studies on female hysteria from 1880 to 1915. He believed that hysteria was a result not of a physical injury in the body but of a psychological scar produced through trauma or repression. Now we're getting somewhere. Mm. 
Now, even though this sounds positive and then we are starting to get into kind of the the psychological kind of meanings and feelings behind trauma and uh, repression and this, thus causing hysteria, we don't have time to get into Freud's theories, but he did believe that this psychological scar was a result of removing a male's sexuality from the female. He believed that women experienced hysteria because they were unable to reconcile the loss of their metaphoric penis. Interesting. With this in mind, Freud described hysteria as characteristically feminine and recommended basically what every other man treating hysteria up until today had been recommending, which was get married and have sex. Mm-hmm. Previously, this was done to allow for the ridding of sexual liquids, whereas now the idea was that a woman could regain her lost penis by <laughs> marrying one and potentially giving birth to one. Mm. Can you believe mm. like, I mean, it's just, you can't write this shit. No, <laughs> lost my pain. I lost my penis, so I better marry one because I'm having all these psychological issues because I'm missing a penis. Oh, God. If marriage wasn't an acceptable or possible treatment, however, there was another technique of treatment that started to rise in popularity known as the uterine massage. Now, this is exactly what you probably think it is. (laughs) we're nodding there's nodding happening it's great for a podcast Mm. (laughs) the uterine massage was of course invented by a swedish army major named fur brandt and though initially used to treat conditions in in soldiers like prolapsed anuses uterine massage quickly became the norm for treating everything in women from tilted uteri to nymphomania Brandt opened several clinics, all of which were remarkably successful. He employed five medical students, 10 female physical therapists, and had doctors from across the globe apprenticing at his clinics, which were known to treat as many as 117 patients in one day. (gasps) Most recommended techniques were bimanual, meaning uh, one hand was placed outside the body on the abdomen and the other inserted to perform the massage until a paroxysmal convulsion, which we now call an orgasm. These sessions were considered long and physically exhausting for doctors for obvious reasons, and this is what led to the creation of stimulation devices, now commonly known as vibrators. Mm-hmm. I don't, have you ever seen the, uh, the TV show Masters of Sex? No, I haven't. So it's brilliant and it's all about the – it's kind of about this story. It's sort of loosely based, I think, on this sort of period of history where there was a doctor that came up with the vibrator basically and started testing it on patients. And it's a very it's a very good series. It was on, I think, SBS or ABC for a while. Yeah, it's, it's very good. Highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Although there were advancements in medicine, the original theories of a wandering uterus were not forgotten. During the Victorian age, most women still carried a bottle of smelling salts in their handbag. 
they're inclined to swoon when their emotions were aroused. And it was believed that, as Hippocrates suggested, the wandering womb disliked the pungent odour and would return (laughs) to its place, allowing the woman to recover the consciousness. Mm. I mean, that in itself, I mean, how many old movies and things have you seen about women just like, oh, give her the smelling salt? Yeah. Like that is why they did it. So the oh. uterus would return back to its place and she wouldn't be suffocated by her own uterus. During the 20th century, psychiatry started to advance and anxiety and depression diagnoses began to replace hysteria diagnosis. Between 1949 and 1978, annual admissions of hysteria patients in England and Wales decreased by roughly two-thirds. Theories for why hysteria diagnosis began to decline vary, but many historians of the Western societies expected depression and anxiety to manifest itself more in post-World War II generations, and so individuals reported or were diagnosed accordingly. World wars caused military doctors to become focused on hysteria, as during this time there seemed to be a rise in cases, especially under instances of high stress. Things like shell shock in men also became quite common. So basically as war started to become, you know, more prevalent um, or after World War II, men started to show similar signs of the Um, same sort of symptoms that women had been displaying. In addition, medical advancements were now able to explain ailments that were previously attributed to hysteria such as epilepsy and infertility. In 1980, after a gradual decline in diagnosis and reports, hysteria was removed from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. 1980. 1980, wow, which had included hysteria as a mental disorder from its second publication in 1968. Wow. In 1980, the American Psychological Association changed the diagnosis of hysterical neurosis conversion type to conversion disorder. Today, someone might be diagnosed with different types of disorders that were historically known as hysteria, including disassociative and somatic disorders. The effects of hysteria as a diagnosable illness in the 18th and 19th centuries had a lot had a lasting effect on the medical treatment of women's health and discrepancies in how women are, tr- are diagnosed and treated. While it's good to see the opinions of men on women's bodies and its functions continue to move in the direction of science, it's still important to acknowledge the lasting impact that this has had on the female body as seen through the male gaze for centuries. Unfortunately, in some areas of the world, it appears that men still think they know what's best for a woman's body and continue to attack our reproductive rights. The McGill University sums this up perfectly in an article, The History of Hysteria, when they say, hysteria was basically the medical explanation for everything that men found mysterious or unmanageable in women, a conclusion only supported by men's historic and continuing dominance over medicine and hysteria's continued use as a synonym for over-emotional or deranged. And that is the history of hysteria. 
Oh, my giddy aunt. And I do – look, I'm not going to leave it there because I do have a really horrible story. <laughs> Excellent. I'm all ears. <laughs> just to give you – just to give you a little bit of like put this into context, this is a real story, okay, mm-hmm. um, that I uncovered while I was doing some of this research, which is just oh – my God. Okay. So we're at the beginning of the 20th century. A young girl by the name of Giovanna was admitted to Genoa Hospital when she was just 10 years old, diagnosed with madness after she complained of a terrible headache or what she called a cranky head. I like it. I know. <laughs> after three years in that hospital, she was moved to the basement of Cagliari, Cagliari's hospital where she describes it as a dark as a tomb, the only place on the island where the mad or the insane or the maniacs or the idiots, as we were called, were locked up. We were 50 people in chains in the smell of our own excrement with rats gnawing at our ulcers. She was then later transferred to Villa Clara Psychiatric Hospital where Professor Sana Salaris formulated a diagnosis of hysteria. But despite being constantly subjected to careful clinical observation, she was only treated here with tonics made up of two eggs and milk, rhubarb tinctures, potassium iodide, lemonade and laudanum, insulin and laxatives. Oh, my God. So she's... Oh, wow. That's how she was treated. Um, Giovanna died in the mental hospital in 1913 due to ageing of organs and senile marasmus, as confirmed in the neurological report. In Giovanna's words, she says, and you better believe it, I was 90 years old. Fate, which takes away healthy, free young people, never pardoned me once. It has let me live all this time, quite lucid, but closed up in here since I was 10 years old, 80 years in a psychiatric hospital for a headache. (sighs) So, yeah, that's, wow, absolutely atrocious, horrific, Mm. one one story, you know. Mm. About this poor girl. So not only women, this, you know, this affected, but young girls, you know, 10 years old. She had a cranky mm. head, a headache. She probably had a sinus infection or something. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before, particularly looking at um, asylum records for women and quite often it was, you know, melancholy or um, something along those lines which would equate to, let's say postnatal depression or anxiety or, or yeah. men's shit. Yeah, that's right. This woman's just had eight babies and, you know, boom, 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 one after the other. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. you can expect her to be bloody, you know, happy-go-lucky mm. all the time. So, yeah, it's um, I think it's important. It's important to know. I mean, we, you know, we still use that term, hysterical, and oh, don't get hysterical, and she's mm. a hysterical lady, and I was in hysterics. But I think it's important to know that, you know, it's it's got a really ingrained sort of history of misdiagnosis of women's mm. problems and men, you know, thinking that they know what's best for women's bodies um, yep. and they don't. And look, this can also like very um, 
are prevalent today to with endometriosis and undiagnosed undiagnosed cases of endometriosis and doctors I'm not saying that it's just male doctors because I know that there are female doctors that don't necessarily believe it or believe in the brevity of it but also you know being um, unable to diagnose yeah that and you know polycystic ovaries and that sort of thing so Yeah. yeah women's health issues are a big issue you are a hundred percent right absolutely anyway um <laughs> anyway on that anyway, note <laughs> i hope we haven't put you in a bad mood after that one you're welcome uh, uh, yes we'll be back next week phoebe's turn next week to tell me a story and mm-hmm. yeah we look forward to being in her ears then and thanks for listening yes uh, we will see you next week See you next week. Bye. Bye.